Good morning, everybody. You can turn over to Mark chapter 5 if you want to get a head start today. We're going to be reading some verses there. And I will try to find it in my own copy of the Bible here. We are in a short series where we are trying to get to know Jesus better by exploring some of the uh, encounters that he has with different people in the Gospels, and particularly in the Gospel of Mark, and how he responds to these people. And the idea is that, that we learn a lot about people, not just by uh, reading about them or hearing about them or collecting information about them, but even in our own lives and our own relationships with each other, we learn a lot about each other by seeing each other in action. And we're going to see that we get to know Jesus better in the same way, by seeing him actually responding to people and going through life situations and seeing him in action. And if this is true of him, then that's a good thing because we know that the Bible is absolutely reliable in what it says about him, and we can read his word and find out how he responded to these situations. And we can also take note of the fact that Jesus Christ does not change, but Hebrews tells us that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so the same Jesus that did what he did back then is the Jesus that we deal with and interact with and pray to today. So let's start by reading our passage. It is Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 1. They, that is Jesus and his disciples, came to the other side of the sea to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them, what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. This is a pretty famous encounter, and uh, it's one of the more picturesque stories that we get in the Gospels, and, and many of you have probably read these verses before you know the story. But let's, let's remember the angle here. 
What does this tell us about Jesus, particularly about Jesus as it relates to our lives today and how we relate to him? I just have two pretty simple observations for you today, although each one of them has a few different dimensions to it. My first observation is simply this, that Jesus is not intimidated by your problems. Jesus is not scared of or intimidated by your problems, whatever they are, and that is because he is infinitely more powerful than a legion of demons. I know a lot of you are facing some pretty big and or complex problems right now. And if you aren't now, you will. It happens to us all. And the tendency, even for Christians, is going to be to give in to a a spirit of fear and a kind of hopelessness and despair because we spend so much time staring at the problem and not enough time staring into the eyes of Jesus Christ and realizing what an incredibly powerful Lord and Savior we have. I think you would all agree that this gentleman in Mark 5 has some major problems. I doubt there's anyone here who would volunteer to switch places with this man in his pre-Jesus condition. He is tortured. He is disturbed. He is lonely. He is angry. He is is self-harming. His life is completely out of control. He can't manage himself, and nobody else can manage him either. Not that anyone has tried to help him in recent days because they've given up on him. He's got no friends. He's got no hope. He's got no future, and he has no relief in sight. That's where he's at. One of the commentators on this passage says, this man gives us, quote, a vivid picture of a manic depressive psychosis. Now, to me that seems like understating the problem a little bit because it doesn't account for the superhuman strength that the guy has and it doesn't account for the fact that there are other beings speaking through his mouth. I I do mention this though because bipolar disorder is one of the more common mental illnesses that we, we see today and people suffering from mental illness are among those who are the most fearful that Jesus will not be able to help them. But if If Jesus is able to help this guy who is basically bipolar on steroids, this is mental illness to the nth degree, okay? If Jesus can help this guy, it stands to reason that he has the power to help you even if you're suffering from mental illness on top of all the other problems that you're dealing with. So let's see. Is that the case? Does Jesus have the power to deal with this man's myriad of problems, or will he find them to be overwhelming and intimidating? Well, we're actually asking the wrong question. We should be asking kind of the reverse question, because although Jesus shows no signs at all of being intimidated by these demons, they appear to be scared to death of him. Think about this. These are some pretty powerful demons. They've taken over this man's life. They've given him supernatural strength. They haven't come close to meeting their match. Nobody can deal with them. Nobody can defeat them. And they've got Jesus outnumbered pretty badly. Did you notice that? There's more of them than there are of him. I don't know how many demons there are here, but they somehow managed to control 2,000 pigs at the end of the story. That's a lot of pigs. If the word legion comes from the idea of a Roman military unit, which is highly likely, then a Roman, the Roman legion had about 5,000 men. So we've got a major boatload of big-time, powerful demons here inside of this man. And so, what do they do with this incredibly impressive firepower? Do they try to scare Jesus, you know, shock and awe? 
Do they, do they surround him and try to come at him from different angles or something like that? No. <laughs> Here's what they do. They see him coming from a distance. They fly into a panic. They run up to him as fast as they can, and they fall trembling at his feet, begging for him not to torture them. Another gospel, they say, don't send us into the abyss. In other words, please don't send us to hell. By the way, if you thought that hell was a place where the demons were in charge, think again. It's a place where they face judgment and punishment. Not only that, but they actually betray their boss. Think about this. Who do these guys work for? Satan. They work for Satan. So supposedly they answer to him. But when faced with Jesus, all of a sudden they're like, Satan who? Right? Because they know that Satan's power is nothing compared to that of Jesus. These demons, they see him, they see Jesus coming, and they realize very suddenly they didn't just bring a knife to a gunfight. They brought a knife and they're looking down the barrel of a Sherman tank. And so they have no choice but, and this is so ironic, they have no choice but to plead for God's mercy and get this, to count on Jesus' honesty and faithfulness to, to spare them. Did you notice that? They're begging Jesus to swear to God because they know that if Jesus promises to let them go, unlike their boss, Jesus will keep his word. So they're depending on him now. Now, Satan does not show up in person here, but he ends up looking pretty pathetic in absentia. Don't you agree? But my point here is this. This is the Jesus. This is the Jesus that you and I follow and believe in and pray to today. It's the Jesus who merely shows up on the scene and thousands of hotshot demons become terrified and surrender without a fight. So tell me again, What part of your problem is too big or too complex for Jesus to deal with? I thought so. Falling into hopelessness and despair because your problem is too big, too scary, or too complex just doesn't make any sense. Not with a Savior like this. Not with a Savior like this. Now you say, okay, awesome. Does that, mean, does that mean that Jesus is automatically and immediately going to remove every disease, every disability, every problem, and every obstacle from my life? Well, it means that he can, right? I mean, they, they, they're no match for him, so I think we can all start by at least believing that to be the case, right? He's powerful enough. He can do it. Now, is there some mystery as to when and how Jesus decides to do these things? Mysteries that involve maybe timing and faith and maybe a purpose that God might have in our suffering that is beyond something that we can trace out? Yes, of course there is. And I'm not going to stand up here and try to sell you on some simplistic formula today for using one word to banish all the pain from your life. But I will tell you three things. First of all, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, and there is no way that an evil spirit has any rightful claim on your life. If you are being oppressed by or influenced by a demonic spirit, you do not need to live with that. And so if you're dealing with an addiction or a compulsive behavior that is stealing your peace and destroying your life, or if you're hearing voices or you sense that you're being harassed or tortured by some presence that is from somewhere else, then please come talk to me or your elder because we need to get this taken care of. There are people at First Alliance who have been delivered from that kind of influence in their lives. Secondly, Don't immediately assume that because you have a problem and you've had it for a long period of time that Jesus just wants you to live with it. 
I mean, he didn't, he didn't just teach this man to manage his problems, right? He delivered him from them. He actually got rid of them. And he might just be waiting for you to ask him to do the same thing for you. As it says in James, often we have not because we ask not. Thirdly, even if Jesus does allow you for whatever reason to walk through the problem and to experience the suffering rather than immediately taking it away, that does not mean that it has to defeat you. When Jesus said no repeatedly to the Apostle Paul's request that he be delivered from a certain problem, his answer was not, you know what, Paul? No, just fall into despair. No, what was it? My grace is sufficient for you. Sometimes we just skip over that word, sufficient. It's enough. In other words, Jesus promises to give you what you need to emerge victorious over your suffering, even if it means that for whatever reason, He's going to let you go through it rather than immediately removing it. He is enough. His grace is more than enough either way. Either way. So to sum up, the Jesus that you speak with tomorrow and that you pray to and that you hang out with over a cup of coffee is more powerful than any problem you could ever have or imagine. Legions of demons fall at his feet, petrified of his power and authority. And don't forget, this event happens on the tail end of a voyage across the Sea of Galilee where Jesus had to calm a storm. Remember that? That was like the night before. So whether your problem is natural or supernatural, it's no match for his power and might. Are we set on that? Okay, let's go up and ask the follow-up question then. Here's the follow-up question, and it's really important. But does he care? But does he care? Does he want to get involved? He may be the most powerful being in existence, but that does not mean much in the long run if my problems don't register on his radar. So let me assure you that not only is Jesus not intimidated by your issues, he is also not unconcerned with your issues. In other words, yes, he does care. He does care. And, and you will see that Jesus takes a very personal interest in this man, this demon-possessed man. Why do I say that? Two reasons. First of all, I want you to make a note of where this miracle happens. Note the physical setting here. It's in the region of Jurassic, which the Bible scholars have pretty much narrowed down to one of two places, but both of them are way on the opposite side of the Sea of Galilee from where Jesus and his disciples usually operate. So they're far away. They're in Gentile territory, miles away from where Jesus and his disciples usually hang out. Notice also that as soon as this miracle has been accomplished, Jesus, who was unwelcome in the area, because of the people's fear and probably because the loss of these pigs was a big economic hit to the region, Jesus, who does not linger where he's not wanted, gets right back in the boat and goes home. This means that he came all this way into Gentile territory, putting his disciples through a night of terror on the high seas and then a morning of being totally freaked out just for one man, for one guy, one tortured, forgotten, outcast man who nobody sees or cares about, but Jesus sees him. Jesus sees him. What did the disciples think when, when this guy showed up to meet the boat, when they, when they, when they got out of the boat and he, this is the first guy they encounter? You know what they're probably thinking? Oh, no. Here's the guy who's going to get in the way of our ministry. I hope Jesus can clear this guy out of the way so we can get some real work done here. No. Jesus says, I, you don't understand. This is our ministry. This guy is the ministry. He's the reason we're here. 
Jesus cares about your problem even if it seems like nobody else does. And he also cares about the problems of the people in your life that you may have given up on because you thought they were a lost cause. Nobody falls through the cracks with Jesus. He will go out of his way to meet the needs of people that nobody else cares about. That's what he does. It's who he is. But there's, there's another way I think Jesus so, shows some, some personal individual concern for this man, and this one is kind of surprising. It's when Jesus doesn't let the man come with him at the end of the story. He doesn't let the man get in the boat with him and the other disciples and go back to Galilee. Now, think about it. When does Jesus ever turn somebody down like this? You know, this, this, this is not a guy who's faking it or a hypocrite. This is a guy who's been, he's been transformed. He's devoted to Jesus. He wants to come, and yet Jesus says, no, you can't come with us. Why did this happen? Well, it isn't that this man doesn't get to follow Jesus. And it isn't that this man doesn't get to join the mission. It's just that he's going to follow Jesus in a different way than the other disciples, and he's going to have his own individual slice of the mission. His job is to go back throughout his hometown, starting with his own family and friends, and to let them know what amazing things the Lord has done for him. That's what he's called to do. And this, in its own way, is probably harder for him than walking away from his old life and making a clean break of it and just starting anew. Because if he stays with his own people, if he stays in his own town, then he's going to have to have the courage to face his past, to deal with the shame of what he once was, to talk with people who may have been hurt by his actions or that he's terrorized their children or whatever. And for all we know, he may not even remember very much of what happened in his life when those demons were so in control of him. But the more, the more he shares his testimony with people who used to know him as the crazy demon-possessed lunatic that he used to be, the more clear it will become, not just to them, but also to him in his own heart, all that Jesus has delivered him from. And every time he tells the story, and every time he thinks about those pigs running down that cliff and drowning in the water, he's going to say, oh yeah, the pigs the pigs, the ones that were destroyed by the demons. That was going to be me until this guy Jesus showed up on the scene. Sometimes when a person comes to know Jesus, the church is really anxious to separate that person from all of his old friends and to immerse him exclusively in Christian society. And yes, New believers need Christian fellowship, absolutely. But, but who better for them to share their new life with than the people who knew them the way they used to be? I got an email a few weeks ago from someone I had not talked to in over 35 years. It was an old high school friend, um, and he is not a, a clergy person of any kind, but he was asked to officiate his niece's wedding. And so he knew that I was a minister, and he, um, he, he wanted some advice on how to plan the ceremony. And of course, a wedding is, is a really easy way to highlight the gospel, quite frankly. So that was a no-brainer to talk about that, and I did that. My friend also mentioned a couple times that, going back to high school and, 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 and the days after that, he said he mentioned that he was kind of inspired by me that I would change course from seeking whatever I was seeking, you know, worldly fame and fortune or whatever, and to go into the ministry. And I was trying to get across to him this, that I didn't change careers because of some altruistic impulse I had always had to help my fellow man, because that wasn't me. 
My career change, if you want to call it that, is part of a larger story. God had done something in the life of a selfish, prideful, arrogant teenager to turn me to himself, to draw me deeper into my relationship with Jesus, and to change me from the inside out. In a lot of ways, I am not very proud of the person that I was in high school, or even for years after that. But you know, I can face up to that now, because in the words of the old Brandon Heath song, I'm not who I was. I'm not who I was. Is, is there anybody in your life who knows at least part of your before story? Either maybe before you came to Christ, or maybe it's like it was with me, that you were a Christian, but it was before the Holy Spirit really got any kind of control of your life, that they knew you then. Have you told them what's happened? Or have you written them off as part of a past that you just don't want to remember anymore? Listen, I don't know whether it's on social media. I don't know whether you see them. I don't know how they're possibly part of your life right now. But, but try not to lose track of those people. Don't lose track of them if you can help it. And the other thing is don't lose track of your story. You need to know it. So rehearse it to yourself once in a while. What has God done? Go back over it. Tell it to yourself. If you're truly a follower of Jesus Christ, then you're not who you were. You're a different person. Part of what Jesus often does in your life, though you don't like it, is to make you face your past. Not to obsess over it, not to get stuck in it, but to remember it for what it was and to appreciate anew the wonderful things that God has done for you in Christ. All right, one last question before we close. Why didn't Jesus send these demons into the abyss? Why didn't he send them right to hell's waiting room, you know, where they're going to be bound and all that? And why, why, why let them go into the pigs? Why did he honor their request? Uh, I'm not sure all of why he did this. Part of it, as I've already suggested, may have been to use the pigs as a vivid illustration. As I mentioned before, that's what the demons wanted to do to the man. And that's what they want to do to us. And they would have happily done that if Jesus hadn't stepped in. But the other thing that I know is true is this, that the mission of Jesus was not just to expel a ragtag band of demons from a little town in the Decapolis. I mean, that was good. But he had much bigger aspirations than that. Jesus was here to take down Satan's entire operation, to blow up the whole thing. He was here to destroy sin and death completely, to disarm the principalities and powers and to make a public spectacle of their demise, to leave Satan utterly defeated and his kingdom completely decimated. That's why he came. But to accomplish that, Jesus was going to have to do more than cast out a few demons. He was going to have to draw them all in so he could destroy them all at once. He couldn't defeat Satan just by casting out some darkness. He was going to have to walk right into the teeth of the darkness and experience all the pain and all the loss that it could bring. And here in Mark chapter 5, as this man sits here, I just picture him sitting in there on a rock, you know, peaceful and calm and having a regular discussion with people, maybe chatting with the disciples. And Jesus looks over at this man, healed, clothed in his right mind, and Jesus knows that one day he's going to be the one naked and bleeding. 
He's going to be the one that's getting jeered at and tortured by legions of demons, betrayed and forsaken and utterly alone with no one to answer him as he hangs forsaken and dying and bleeding on a Roman cross. See, the only way for for Jesus to defeat Satan in your life and mine, the only way for him to deliver us from our demons, from our own sin, and the eternal death that goes with it, is for him to experience death on our behalf, to switch places with us. And he did that. He did that for you. Fill in your name. He did that for you. He personally did it for you. But of course, that wasn't the end of the story. Jesus also walked out of the tombs. After absorbing everything the enemy could throw at him, including death itself, Jesus walked right out of that borrowed grave, meaning that you and I are now delivered, all who will put our trust in him, from the curse and the penalty of sin forever. Clean, free to go. That victory, that victory, the the ultimate victory over darkness was actually a much bigger victory than Jesus won that day for this demon-possessed man on the east side of the sea. It was the victory over your darkness and mine. If Jesus can be trusted to walk into the teeth of that darkness and then to defeat death itself, is there anything that he can't be trusted with? Does he not have the power Does he not care? He does. He still does today. He still does today. Let's pray that the worship team comes.